Now, how do you distinguish between when do you disclose to OFAC, when do you disclose to DOJ? Well, OFAC standard is strict liability, meaning if the violation occurred, it doesn't matter whether you knew the conduct was illegal. Sometimes you thought it wasn't illegal, but it turns out to be illegal. You're nonetheless on the hook. The only way the intent of having a knowing violation or reason to comes into play as an aggravating factor in the penalty calculation. What about DOJ? With regard to criminal, a voluntary disclosure should be triggered if the conduct involves potential willful. Willful is the key term, a potential willful violation. And an act is willful if done with knowledge the conduct is illegal, not the specific law or regulation or sanction that you're violating, but that you know it's illegal. Global companies face unprecedented risks and challenges in today's economy. To mitigate these legal and economic risks, companies are rapidly embracing and elevating the importance of robust ethics and compliance programs to promote positive corporate citizenship. On Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, you'll hear from industry leaders and insiders about how to create effective ethics and compliance programs that will mitigate risks and maximize financial performance. Here's your host, Michael Volkov. Hello, everyone. This is Michael Volkov, and we're going to talk about today the new FCPA, Sanctions and Export Control Enforcement. Now, I just did a webinar on this, but I thought it was important enough to just sort of review some of the top-line issues relating to what this really means in terms of sanctions and export control enforcement. So what are the elements of the quote-unquote new FCPA? And what is DOJ's new approach going to be? And what are some examples of that that I can sort of point out so everybody can be on the same page? This is really a transformative event, an initiative. And I think it reflects the fact that last year, 75% of the criminal cases brought against corporations related to national security matters, which would be sanctions enforcement, money laundering, terrorism, those types of things. So we need to take a step back, recalibrate where sanctions and export control enforcement is going to go. And you're not going to be surprised by sort of the storyline of this because it actually mirrors kind of what occurred in the FCPA area in 2008, 2010 to today. And we're seeing the beginning of sort of the morphing of sanctions and export control enforcement into this area that's analogous to FCPA enforcement. So what are the elements of the new FCPA in terms of sanctions? Well, DOJ will play a lead role in conjunction with OFAC or with BIS, the Bureau of Industry and Security at the Department of Commerce or even the Department of State with regard to ITAR, military Now, the role in that relationship between the civil enforcement or regulatory enforcement and the Justice Department to handle criminal cases is akin to the DOJ and the SEC's relationship when it comes to FCPA enforcement. Some cases will be handled by the SEC and DOJ may decline, or some cases might have enforcement aspects that involve both. Corporate resolutions are going to increase significantly. And they're going to look like FCPA cases where a company may pay 
100, 200, 300 million dollars, including a deferred prosecution agreement or a guilty plea. And you'll see higher and higher penalties, individual prosecutions as well, and assignment of corporate monitors and heightened compliance expectations around export controls and sanctions compliance. And that means it's really important to ramp up your sanctions compliance program or your export controls as well to make sure you don't run into any problems. Now, one of the other things that we've already seen and we're going to see more of is that there's going to be more and more guidance given through the enforcement actions themselves. In other words, we'll have language in there. And this was for many years in the beginning of the FCPA enforcement ramp up before the 2012 FCPA guidance was issued. And we would look at each individual enforcement action and look for clues or look for anything that reflected DOJ's view as to compliance and what they expected in terms of a compliance program. We're going to see the same thing here, and I'm going to show you an example, uh, one that just recently occurred. Now, how do we put these pieces together? Well, here's how we know that this is all coming. First off, DOJ, like always, has told us. They tell us what they're going to do in advance, and then they do it, and then nobody should be surprised. So we've had public pronouncements about a new aggressive enforcement program, speeches, etc., the rationale is to protect national security. And we've seen the other part of the puzzle, which is the assignment of resources. So DOJ and Lisa Monaco, the deputy attorney general, has announced that there will be 25 additional national security division prosecutors. Remember, sanctions and export controls are not handled by the criminal division. They are handled by the national security division, which has criminal authority. So we've seen when you see 25 additional National Security Division prosecutors, you know, by definition, they're going to have to produce and they're going to produce cases against companies and individuals. Now, also, she noted that there'll be a substantial investment in the Bank Integrity Unit, which is a part of the criminal division's anti-money laundering operations for global banks and sanctions enforcement. In other words, they're going to go after, and they did years ago, go after many of the global banks for sanctions violations. And they could just pick them off and sort of bring big cases all the way up to BNB Paribas, which was an $8 billion settlement. So we're going to see more enforcement against global banks with regard to sanctions enforcement. And remember that we have some existing task forces and initiatives that will play into this. You have the kleptocracy initiative, and the recently announced Disruptive Technology Task Force that brought a bunch of cases, and I just put it on my blog, sort of summarizing the eight or so cases that were brought. So these are the pieces that we're seeing put together. The Deputy Attorney General Monaco has warned specifically that, quote, sanctions and export controls risks should be at the top of every company's lists of compliance risks. And she also noted that DOJ has pending investigations of companies for sanctions evasion in several industries, including transportation, fintech, banking, defense, and agriculture. So we're going to see big cases that are coming, and they're going to look like some of the cases that we're going to talk about in a minute. 
We also had a speech by the principal deputy attorney general, Marshall Miller, about the overlap of corporate crime and national security, which I pointed out. And he also noted that there's been the appointment of a first ever chief counsel for corporate enforcement, for corporate enforcement in the national security division, along with the 25 new prosecutors, along with the substantial investment and banking integrities unit. So DOJ has set it up for us. They've told us what they're going to do. They're putting the resources in place. And this also raises another important issue, which is going to come up significantly in in a number of cases. And it's a nuanced issue relating to how do we conduct or how do we examine weigh the benefits and costs of a voluntary disclosure. So OFAC, for example, already has a voluntary disclosure program, and it's considered a mitigating factor in enforcement actions. It results in a reduction of the base amount of any proposed civil penalty and usually reduces the maximum fine by 50%, so there's clearly a benefit to the company financially by doing so. DOJ and the National Security Division issued a new voluntary disclosure program in 2019, and that was just recently updated. But basically, it says a company that voluntarily self-discloses, fully cooperates, and timely and appropriately remediates will not have to plead guilty, can earn a presumption of a non-prosecution agreement, and will not pay a fine. They may pay disgorgement, which is disgorgement of illegal profits. And now this is in the absence of aggravating factors, including serious violation, their recidivist, or upper management was involved. Even if an aggravating circumstance is present, though, a company can earn a 50% fine reduction and no corporate monitor. Now, how do you distinguish between when do you disclose to OFAC, when do you disclose to DOJ? Well, OFAC standard is strict liability, meaning If the violation occurred, it doesn't matter whether you knew the conduct was illegal. Sometimes you thought it wasn't illegal, but it turns out to be illegal. You're nonetheless on the hook. The only way the intent of having a knowing violation or reason comes into play as an aggravating factor in the penalty calculation. What about DOJ? With regard to criminal, a voluntary disclosure should be triggered if the conduct involves potential willful. Willful is the key term, a potential willful violation. And an act is willful if done with knowledge the conduct is illegal, not the specific law or regulation or sanction that you're violating, but that you know it's illegal. And so now, based on this, there may be circumstances where you have a close case as to whether or not you meet the willful standard and whether there would be a benefit then of voluntary disclosure with DOJ. Because remember, there's going to be cross-pollinization between OFAC and DOJ. If OFAC sees it and says, oh, that looks willful, they'll refer it over to DOJ. So you may want to beat OFAC in that disclosure by notifying both OFAC and DOJ of a voluntary disclosure. The number of voluntary disclosures involving both is definitely going to increase as we have more corporations that are subject to enforcement actions. So let's take some examples just so you can see what I'm talking about. We had one recently, a 
a very big case against British American Tobacco for $629 million. DOJ and OFAC brought an enforcement action, settled it, and British American Tobacco agreed to pay a combined penalty of $629 million for illegal sales of cigarettes to North Korea. DOJ also charged criminally a North Korean banker and two Chinese facilitators. Now, British American Tobacco's subsidiary pled guilty to a one-count information of a conspiracy to commit bank fraud and to violate sanctions, and they entered into a deferred prosecution agreement. OFAC announced a separate civil settlement for $508 million, which is the largest fine against a non-financial institution in OFAC's history. And that's what we're going to be seeing, largest fines against a non-financial institution. We'll eclipse $508 million probably in the next couple of years. Now, British American Tobacco scheme was they had a phony divestiture and a phony joint venture that continued going back to 2008 where they said they were getting out of the North Korean market. They sold its Singapore subsidiary that deals with North Korea. And you knew it was a fake transaction because it turns out that the sale was for one euro. And the JV, which was continued, but with this new entity in it, was used to disguise continued payments to British American tobacco for tobacco products sold to North Korea. And this was done with the higher-ups full direction and even crafting of this scheme. And we have not seen any individual enforcement actions in this case. And it may be that because there's a statute of limitation problem, because they stopped the sales to North Korea in 2018. So let's look at an example with BIS and the Department of Commerce, BIS being the Bureau of Industry and Security, and Matt Axelrod, who is the Assistant Secretary for Export Enforcement, has repeatedly warned over the last year companies of a new era of aggressive export control enforcement. And he's delivered on that. He brought a case and a settlement with Seagate Technology, which for $300 million, and it is, stands again as the largest administrative penalty in BIS history. Now, what did Seagate do? Seagate deliberately and knowingly violated the Huawei sanctions, the sanctions against the Chinese telecommunications company Huawei. In 2019, Huawei was added to BIS's entity list, and there were then licensing requirements with a presumption of denial for exports, re-exports, and transfers of all items subject to EAR, destined to or involving Huawei entities. These sanctions were then expanded in August of 2020 over the Foreign Direct Product Rule, FDP, which included a licensing requirement with a presumption of denial when there was one listed Huawei entity was a party to the transaction, and two, a foreign produced item. In other words, a factory that produced an item in an overseas plant, but included a component of the plant that is itself a U.S. origin technology or software product subject to the EAR, and that's the Export Administration Regulations, would fall subject to U.S. jurisdiction. Seagate blatantly ignored this export requirement. And now what's interesting is DOJ appears to be investigating this because we have blatant violations 
Seagate continued to sell hard disk drives to Huawei in violation of the foreign direct product rule. And Seagate had HDD manufacturing sites in China, Northern Ireland, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, and the U.S. But they used equipment, including testing equipment, which was subject to the EAR and the FDB rule. Starting in September 2020, Seagate announced it was going to continue to do business. This is one month after the FDP rule was announced. And in contrast to their two competitors who issued public statements saying that they would cease all business. Seagate then committed 429 violations, earned $1.1 billion in revenues, and now paid a $300 million administrative penalty. Like I said, DOJ is still investigating, and we're likely to see individuals and Seagate pay another penalty with regard to this action. Now, one last case that I wanted to mention before we close shop here, and that is a recent OFAC action against Murad, a cosmetics company, for $3.3 million for Iran sanctions violations. Over an eight-year period ending in 2018, Murad, a U.S. cosmetics company in California, exported goods and services to Iran for approximately $11 million worth of product. Murad was acquired by Unilever in 2015, and once discovered, Unilever voluntarily disclosed the conduct. Murad ended up paying $3.3 million to OFAC, and they also prosecuted, interestingly, a former senior executive from Murad who settled for $175,000. Now, in the conduct focused on a third-party distributor. In 2009, Murad entered into a distribution agreement to sell their products in the Middle East, including Iran. The distributor, the executive, signed the distribution agreement. And at the same time, Murad filed a pending an application for a specific license to authorize these sales. Well, interestingly enough, that proves that they had the intent and they knew that they were in violation by beginning to sell, and they were, I guess, banking on getting the license approved, which they didn't. Six years later, the executive signs another distribution agreement with the same CEO for a UAE-based company, but they continue to sell products to Iran. Unilever agrees to acquire Murad. The transaction closes in September 2015, and Murad never disclosed its Iran business activities, and Unilever didn't discover them in pre-acquisition due diligence. But for six years, Murad maintained a website for its Iran business under the web address, and wait for it, murad.ir. And you would think that there would have been some due diligence done. So Unilever discovered Murad's business activities. They told Murad to shut it down. What did Murad do? They continued to sell products. Not until three years later when a bank raised questions about payments involving Murad. The reason I wanted to discuss this case was also because of the important sanctions compliance guidance that was included in this enforcement action. And this is what I mean by when they ramp up enforcement and use enforcement actions to, to promote compliance ideas and they sort of include language to that effect. And here, what OFAC criticized was something that we all should make sure we're aware of. And that is place 
here Unilever was a UK-based company. Its trade compliance staff in the UK was responsible for compliance in the United States. And OFAC didn't like that. They said that the Murad staff reported to UK trade compliance staff, and they noted that UK compliance staff lacked an adequate understanding of OFAC sanctions. And OFAC stated that in some circumstances, placement of a US entity under the compliance structure of a non-US entity that may look familiar with US sanctions laws could prevent prompt identification in response to potentially prohibited conduct. In other words, that the non-U.S. entity lacked the familiarity with U.S. sanctions laws, and this would undermine the overall compliance mission. An important, important message, if you work at a company where you have a foreign parent and you are a U.S. subsidiary, you have to have local boots on the ground. One other point that OFAC made a big point about is that pre-acquisition due diligence and post-acquisition integration and audits have to be part of this mix when you acquire companies, and companies have to closely oversee their new business to identify potential sanctions issues. So, important message there from OFAC. These are just three examples that I wanted to go over in terms of issues that are clearly going to be part of the new FCPA enforcement regime, or new, in quotes, FCPA, for sanctions enforcement and for export control enforcement. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week with a new episode. Stay in touch, and we'll see you next week. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to support the show is by subscribing on your favorite listening platform. To learn more and connect with Michael Volkov, go to volkovlaw.com.